we say mazel tov all the time. And it literally means under a good sign, which is about the heavens. So we're literally wishing each other good astrology every time we say that. <laughs> It'd be a good it's a big word too. We say it all the time. As a student of Torah, I've always had an uneasy relationship with astrology. On the one hand, I'm not a believer in astrology. But it's not just that I'm not a believer, it's that I think of astrology as potentially conflicting with my own basic beliefs as a Jew. I mean, we're the ones who were told not to make an image of what is in the heavens above, and not to bow down to them or serve them. That's the second commandment. And isn't astrology kind of doing that, seeing the stars as higher powers? In, in fact, the rabbis of old often referred to idolatry generally as avodat kochavim, worship of the stars. But on the other hand, there's no denying that some of the greatest Jewish thinkers in history have been big believers in astrology. Medieval Jewish philosophers took it very seriously, albeit with varying degrees of suspicion. And there are even astrological speculations by rabbis in the Talmud. But I've always just dismissed that by telling myself, hey, that was the science of the day. The rabbis in our tradition are open to the wisdom of natural science, just like I am. But if they lived in our time, when we have different scientific theories, these rabbis would think differently. But then there's the Ibn Ezra. Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra of 12th century Spain is second only to Rashi as the most classic and revered of the Torah commentators. His commentary is legendary and it helps to define the genre that I love so much. And meanwhile, Ibn Ezra was an astrologer. Not just sympathetic to astrology, but an expert in it. Wrote nine books on the subject. And not only that but his astrology finds its way into his Torah commentary fairly often. And that makes it a part of our tradition. That means I have to take it seriously. I have to take it seriously at the very least if I want to understand Ibn Ezra's commentary, because Ibn Ezra uses astrology to interpret the Torah in all kinds of ways. But even more than that, there's a part of me that feels I have to take astrology seriously just because one of my sages took it seriously. If one of the great masters of the Torah was also a believer in the power of this system, well, that in itself feels significant to me. But let's start with the commentary. How, how does Ibn Ezra's astrology seep in? So, for example, take the story of Bilam. Late in the book of Numbers, we get this major interruption in the main narrative of the Israelites traveling through the desert. And suddenly we're in this side story of King Balak of Moab, who's trying to hire this mysterious figure, Bilam, son of Baor, to curse Israel. Because, he says, I know that whomever you bless is blessed, and whomever you curse is cursed. Now, this story's appearance in the Torah is weird for all kinds of reasons, but one of them is 
who is this guy who can apparently predict the future, maybe even affect the future with his blessings and curses? What kind of power is he tapped into? Is he a prophet like Moses? Some of the Midrashim go in that direction. We have our prophets, they have theirs. But others are more reluctant to say that there are just prophets lurking everywhere among all the nations. I mean, doesn't that kind of contradict some of the premises of the Torah, which are that Moses had this unique access to God and that God has a special covenant with the children of Israel? Could the same God who saved us from Egypt then turn around and doom us just because some guy named Bilaam said to? How do we make sense of this strange figure with strange powers? Well, the Ibn Ezra has an answer. He starts by considering the possibilities. Some say, he says, that Bilaam was a prophet. Okay, that we knew. And some say, he continues, that Bilaam knew the mind of heavenly beings and was able to channel their powers below with forms that he made. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but perhaps Bilaam was in touch with other divine beings. However, he concludes, what seems correct to me is that Haya Yodea Mezalot, is that Bilaam was an astrologer. When Bilaam saw in the star of a given person that an even t- evil time had befallen him, he would curse him. When evil befell the one whom he cursed, then those who witnessed and heard the imprecation thought that the evil came because of Bilaam's curse. So, the Ibn Ezra is saying that Bilaam would use his astrological knowledge to predict events and then pretend to summon those events himself in the forms of blessings or curses. Now, why does the Ebenezer choose this answer? How does it serve him here? Well, he's intent on distinguishing Bilaam from a prophet because it seems important to him to say that only Israel receives prophecy. So the astrologer functions as his alternative to explain why other nations have people with predictive powers. Thus, he finds a way of affirming both astrology and the unique prophecy of Moses. Astrology is, in this reading, clearly a true and powerful science, but it's not as powerful as being a prophet, connected to God, like Moses, who can actually summon some new force into the world, like the plagues or the splitting of the Red Sea. That can change the state of the natural world. Bilaam, in contrast, was just using the stars to see what was already going to happen. And then, it seems, he would claim the fated event as if he himself had called it forth. So, there you have it. An example of the Ibn Ezra using what he sees as the truth of astrology to give an explanation of a story in the Torah. And, of course, in doing so, he's also implicitly suggesting something even bigger, which is that the Torah itself is making reference to astrology. That the Torah itself acknowledges the possibility of tapping into that system and using it effectively. Now, that is a bold claim. And that is a lot to process. And in order to process it effectively, I realized I was going to need the help of an astrologer. But not just any old someone willing to read your horoscope for you. I needed someone who really knew their stuff who was really steeped in the tradition of astrology, but also, ideally, someone who knew the work of Ibn Ezra 
and who was familiar enough with astrology and Jewish tradition that they could help me put him in those contexts. Well, I was lucky enough to find the perfect person. Or or was it luck? Um, Chani Nicholas, uh, C-H-A-N-I, uh, that is, and she said I could call her Chani if I wanted to, because that's what it looked like to my reading at first. But Chani, Chani Nicholas, is about as well-established as an astrologer can be in our contemporary landscape. She wrote a monthly astrology column for Oprah Daily, and nothing's more big time than Oprah. Um, she has a great app, also called Chani, and a website where she does birth charts and daily horoscopes. And I was introduced to her through her book, which came out in 2020, called You Were Born for This, Astrology for Radical Self-Acceptance. And here's what I liked so much about the book, I, who was totally unlearned in astrology. First of all, it's very clearly written, and the learning method that she lays out is very practical and straightforward. So it's accessible. But having said that, I, I love that it's also very detailed and, and dense with information, and clearly the work of someone who knows her stuff really well and has a gift for communicating an esoteric ancient system into language that can enter a modern ear. And as someone who spends a lot of time with esoteric ancient systems myself, that's a, a gift I greatly admire. And, it turned out, I had an in. Because not only is Chani, as it happens, Jewish herself, but in fact, she's a member of my shul, Ikar. And so I've heard friends in our community rave about her and her work for a while, but I'd never actually met her myself. So I reached out, and as you'll hear, it turned out that she was also already excited to have exactly this conversation. You might say it was faded. We sat down to share some mutual love for Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, and then to use him as a touchpoint for exploring the intersection of Judaism and astrology. We discussed the role of astrologers in the ancient world, the implications of astrology for concepts like fate and free will, and whether ultimately it makes sense to think of astrology as an art, a science, or a spirituality. But one of the main things we talked about, and it came up right away, was anxiety. The anxiety around astrology in Jewish spaces, and the anxious response an astrologer might get when she walks into a Jewish space. It was a great conversation, and I was grateful to Chani for her willingness to engage in an open, exploratory dialogue with a rabbi. Uh, so take a listen. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Chani. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. So, so, so excited to have you on today. Hi. Um, I'm really, I'm really, ex I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you because when I, when I reached out to you, I think we, we realized that we have kind of mirror image bucket lists. Or, or you said, oh, it's on my bucket list to talk uh, one of these days to a <laughs> rabbi about the Ibn Ezra. Um, and, and I was like, well, that's why I'm reaching out to you. It's my, on my bucket list to talk to an astrologer <laughs> about the Ibn Ezra. So this is like, a, if, if for no one else, this is a conversation that we, we've, we've been wanting to have. It's just yeah, for exactly. us. Um, so, Nobody else yeah. cares. Yeah, well, that is the big question, right? How many people will care about this? But I think, I think a lot of people are interested in, 
in um, in astrology, and a lot of people are interested in Judaism. And and actually, this figure Abraham Ibn Ezra is really kind of the perfect uh, overlapping uh, point in those two conversations. Um, so um, so I, so I'm 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 I'm, I'm we'll, we'll study a little bit of of his writing on, on the topic. I'll give a little bit of a background of who the Ibn Ezra was. He's he's kind of second only to Rashi on any list of the most classic Torah commentators. Um, he uh, he he lived most of his life in Spain, in Toledo, Spain. Um, was uh, was active in the in the 11th century and the 12th century, and he was he was kind of a, a man of of all. Of, he was a uh, he wasn't a Renaissance man because it wasn't the Renaissance yet. But but he was he was kind of a a, a man of of, of many uh, fields and many um, areas of expertise. He 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 knew mathematics and. And he was a grammar expert and a poet. He was a poet of, of great renown. And we know him um, in Jewish tradition as this, this famous and classic Torah commentator. But he, um, he was also um, deeply interested in, not just interested in astrology, but wrote nine books on astrology and two translations of other books on astrology. And, you, and, and for, a, for a student of, of Jewish text, He'll be one of the the figures that he'll be one of the kind of primary encounters that you'll have with this astrology. But I, I I don't know much about astrology. I'll say right at the outset. So so I'm kind of curious to hear how he lands for you. What's your how how have you heard of him? Well, you know, it was really interesting when I actually when I joined Ecar. It was the first time you know I would tell people that I was an astrologer, and it was the first time that I got. A deeply negative reaction on mass. I will say this. So I was like, I encountered in our kind of cultural, you know, diaspora, this very deep seated fear or skept and well, skepticism is one thing. But what I encountered was like this really visceral negative reaction to it. And it was really fascinating to me. And so it's very interesting to be full circle right now to be talking to you about astrology on this podcast because it was like an attitude that I came up and I was like, where is this fear from? And then, of course, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of uncovering it. So it was at the same time that I was starting to study with a teacher who does traditional astrology and traditional astrology is from this is from, you know, it's really like the last couple thousand years of astrology and which is the same piece of history as if you wanted to study the history of Judaism it's the same part of the world and it's the same time frame of history so when I started studying with her and uh, you know I came across Ibn Ezra I was like oh wow this actually ties together two of my worlds in a way that felt really affirming because I was like, okay, there were Jewish astrologers because also when I first started studying astrology, there was no kind of astrological, the astrological history that I had was not as deep and not as, uh, not as we, we're, we weren't as well versed like on mass. It's really been over the past couple of decades that historians have put together 
the history of astrology in a really deep kind of contextual way and made it and given it to us, given it to the public. And my teacher is kind of one of in the mix of one of those people who have done these translations. And so it was like I was given back a history and could also see myself in it and started to really be able to like weave together where this is from, who was a part of it. And the truth is, is that, you know, in this ancient world that we're, you know, rooted in and that we're from, there was everybody, right? Like there was, there was, everybody lived with each other and there were so many different cultures together and also so many different people taking over and in power. And one of the things that was always passed about was people's knowledge. So astrology in the ancient world was one of those things that if someone took over a region, they were like, okay, give us your astrological texts. Like, what, what do y'all know? <laughs> How can we benefit from your knowledge? Because as we know, in the ancient world, like knowledge was such a, you know, a profound kind of power that you could attain. And so in these kind of cross-cultural moments of exchanging knowledge, Right, because there are, there, are, there are astrological systems that emerge out of Egypt, that emerge out of Greece, that emerge out of India. I mean, there are a lot of, there, there's, you're talking about exchanges, and, it, and I guess there, there are homegrown astrologies from, from many different cultures as well, yeah? Or, or is there an origin where it really all comes from here? Well, it's really fascinating because we're talking about Mesopotamia, we're talking about like before Judaism is like a thing, we're talking about, uh, so Egypt has one kind of understanding of the sky. Mesopotamia and like Babylonia has another understanding of the sky. And then these things start to merge under Hellenism, things start to come together and merge. And then there's a lot of different philosophies I won't get too in the weeds about it, but all of a sudden over the course of like 50 years, we get a full-fledged astrological system that kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere. So it's really like when you study like the origins of any kind of tradition, you get like to a place where you're like, there's no clear-cut answer of like how this thing came about. But it was it's very clear that we were in those places where trade was happening a lot between like China, India, and you know, like Egypt and like all these different sources once we started to trade that we started to swap knowledge and that we were influencing each other. And so there's a lot of stuff in like ancient Indian astrology that you can find in ancient, what we would call traditional astrology and vice versa. So there's just so much exchange happening and Judaism comes out of this place that is deeply embedded in astrological symbolism, knowledge, practice. And One of the things I think is so important is understanding like, so I'm coming from the perspective of like, wow, there's a lot of like, this is bad in our culture. Like astrology is bad. We don't want to do this. This is a thing we don't want to do. Yeah. I mean, I I must say I'm not surprised by that reaction. Like, you know, like I I wish you a more pleasant (laughs) reaction, you know, in Jewish communities, but I'm not, I'm not surprised by that. I, I think that there is a kind of anxiety that I'm, familiar with um, in contemporary Jewish uh, communities, but that sort of stretches all the way back, a kind of uncertainty, like, is this kosher, basically? Like, what what do we do with this? And some of that is is 
some of that is really grounded in some of our core theology, like, oh, you don't worship, you know, the sun and you worship God. And so this is, is this, is this worshiping the sun? I think that's like sort of underlying some of the anxiety. And yet, yeah. And yet, what do we do every month? And yet, what do we do every Shabbat? We wait for the sun to go down, no? Right, right, right. We're very tuned in to the movement of the, of the, of the stars of the cosmos for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't there something where you can wait, you, where the sun goes down, but you wait for the appearance of three stars before it's like technically? Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Yeah, there's that. The, I think Judaism in general has kind of an uneasy relationship with like. On the one hand, we have this kind of theology that's um, that's come out of the Middle Ages of like God is just this pure abstract idea. But on the other hand, the the most ancient parts of our religion are very earthy and I guess not just earthy, but like starry and, you know, really rude, like connected to like an observation of the of the physical world around us, for sure. Because that's what we had. Mm-hmm. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have things that kind of took us out of the living world. We were very in the living world. We uh, Humans, that's how we came out. Like, of course, we would look up to the heavens for something basically for time, right? It's a way to tell time. It's a way for us to know when we do the specific religious festivals that we do. And so we operate on a calendar that is based in, in, in the bodies in, uh, of the sky, right? We, we operate, we're very tuned in to what the sun and moon are doing. Great. So this is actually, this is a kind of perfect en- entry I- into this this anxiety that that exists and I think has has existed for a long time in 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 Jewish consciousness around well what do we do with the with astrology or with the sciences of the of the stars of the heavens um, I, I, it's it, it's it's a perfect way to kind of get into some of the material I want I want to look at with you today because I think maybe the first place that you can see some of this anxiety is in the descriptions that the rabbis would give of of astrologers like the the, the astrologer was a familiar figure in um, not just rabbinic right. consciousness but really going all the way back to the to the torah to the bible itself like and before 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 we wrote it all down you know like it's Astrologers have been around for thousands of years. Yeah. So that's precisely what what I wanna what I wanna a- ask about is that when you read, um, for example, um, the works of Midrash, which are the great works of commentary on mm-hmm. on the Torah, you know, in the Torah itself, yeah. um, f- Pharaoh is the kind of the the great leader of Egypt, and he's got the he's got these figures, advisor figures around him, and in the Torah they're called Khartoumim, like uh, which diviners or sorcerers. But by the time you get to mm-hmm. rabbinic commentary, they're talking about it. They're even using the word astrologin. They these these astrologers that were mm-hmm. advising Pharaoh. And one of the classic legends is that Pharaoh is is drowning baby boys because his astrologers have told him there's a boy will soon be born who will be the redeemer of of Israel. Right. So they're naming. Oh, the astrologers are whispering into Pharaoh's ear and you can sense that they're that's like the anxiety. Like they they believe in them. They believe that they have some kind of power, but but it's but they're associated with the with the bad guys. So let me just like start by asking if that sounds like a familiar description of a 
of an astrologer and in the ancient world as a kind of a counselor to, um, you know, to to people who would be making strategic decisions, national decisions, like that that sort of astrologer in the royal court figure that the rabbis are imagining. Does that does that correspond with your um, with your knowledge? That was that was the only gig in town back then. We didn't have personal. It wasn't like personal horoscopes, you know, it wasn't like, oh, well, Leo on Tuesday, you're going to, it was like, we're going to look, we, we're going to study these, the sky for hundreds of years and make up a, an understanding of it. And then we're going to use it for general populations. So in the beginning, it was used by rulers, you know, and we can say like Reagan right. had an astrologer. Right. Nancy Reagan had an astrology. So it's not just like, it's not just like ancient times. It's like, not just you know, back in the day, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so astrologers were always, you know, like whispering in the ear of, and they were always brought to court. Now this didn't fare so well for the astrologers a lot of times, because if you got it wrong, you could get, you know, off with their heads. And if you got it right and it was bad news, also not so good for you. So it was very dangerous. It was a very dangerous job to be an astrologer to a ruler because, you know, they have all the power. But yes, that is that is correct. And also, you know, if that was the astrologer's prediction, did it come true? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm just, I have this figure in my mind of the astrologer in ancient times who's like whispering into to Pharaoh's ear and telling telling, you know, predicting the future. But I also like I, I did a little reading. I told you I read that article by Meira Epstein and um, describing the Ibn Ezra's. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and she and she listed all these, you know, there's natal astrology and there's electional astrology and, you know, um, medical astrology. So there's all these different kinds of astrology. And I wonder how much that predictive like you can look into the stars and tell what's going to happen in the future, how how familiar that is to you, how central it is to your understanding of astrology. You know, the, uh, the astrologers talk a lot about this. Like when you're predicting something, you have to be really aware of the conditions within which you're predicting something. So part of my work is to say, this is the quality of time that we're in. And, you know, I think that that's also a very Jewish kind of way of seeing something, right? Like there, we're, we're talking about different qualities of time. We're talking about the 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 ways in which different pockets of time help us to experience different aspects of ourselves. And so when I do astrology for, you know, in our business and for like people at large, I'm talking about like this is a this is a chunk of time. And astrologically, this is what we would do with it. So it's not a, it's like an anti-fear-based approach to it all because I believe that we have free will within a set of conditions. Like I live in LA right now. I don't live in Singapore. Like the, I'm not there. I'm here. So I can do certain things in LA and I can't do other things. I'm not, you know, in Canada, I'm not in the winter time. There's no snow here, but there's winter time here. So it's like, these are the conditions. What do you want to do within those conditions? And Ibn Ezra talks a lot about that. There's that piece of it. And then he talks a lot about the fact that if you are pious, if you are observing, if you're an observant Jew, you can kind of get it, you can pop out of all that and it's going to be okay. So it's, it's a fascinating thing because 
he is deeply entrenched in astrological thought. He's also transcribing texts in a way that preserves them. Like he becomes like a really important bridge, not only astrologically, but for a lot of the, like the Islamic sciences and philosophies, like he's, you know, this great transcriber and translator and thinker and poet and philosopher. And, you know, even though he's like, no, no, if you follow, you know, the, if you have faith, if you, you know, do all these things, you're going to be okay anyways. And yet he still devotes this like 20 years of writing astrological texts. So that I find curious too. I, I'm just, I'm so like, it's, it just warms my heart to hear like the, the, the is such a, he's such a master in, 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 in our tradition, in Torah commentary to think that he had mastery that would be recognized by many traditions is such a, he's such, such an incredible guy. Yeah. Mathematics, science, like he, I mean, you, again, like maybe this was a little bit more common to be so prolific back then because, you know, thought and critic critical thought was really important but he's still somebody who like devoted his whole life to learning and to disseminating so much knowledge and yet he describes himself as someone who has such bad luck that if he was a candle maker the sun would never go down he had a really hard life the Ibn Ezra I mean he was he was in Spain until he was 50 51 and then and then for reasons we don't we don't know uh, for sure he started traveling for the rest of his life and just being you know writing things and being supported for his writing but um but one of the reasons that um that people think he left is that he had he had several children die and he was he was he lived in great poverty and some of his children died and yeah he had a really really hard life and it's yeah i mean it's interesting the way you're framing it like here's this guy who thinks he has some kind of knowledge of the fates and and how they affect us and yet his own fate is is not so good yeah um he's still talked about and his work is still so important to us right in the end I guess his fate was was glorious yeah yeah, yeah. so so let, so let's get into his his thought a little bit we, we talked a little bit about the anxiety that I I think I think does in, in a certain sense go all the way back in Jewish tradition. And by that, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a famous passage in the Talmud where one rabbi, Rabbi Hanina, is very, he's just listing kind of what we would call astrological um, uh, uh, beliefs. Like, you know, one, one who was born under the influence of Jupiter and one who was born under the influence of Saturn will be like this. And then there's a response in the Talmud. Another rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan says, no, ain mazali Israel. Like Israel, this may be true, but like not for us. Israel has no mazal. We we know that word like mazal tov, but like Israel has no sign, no for we're 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 detached from all that, or maybe we're above all that. And so there there's a certain kind of tension that gets set by the Talmud there. Like on the one hand, it seems like so we do kind of believe there's something to this, but no, not not us. We're not in, invested in this. And it seems like the reason for that is, well, because we have God, we have some other, some higher force and we're, we escape this system. Yes. Um, that's like, that's the early kind of tension. But I think that the, you know, the Ibn Ezra, you, you think? I think it remains for a long, I think it's, I think it's the origin of it. Two things. We say Mazel Tov all the time. And it literally means under a good sign, which is about the heavens. 
So we're literally wishing each other good astrology every time we say that. <laughs> It'd be a good sign in a way, right? That's what it's from. And it's such a big word too. We say it all the time. Mazel. And then, yeah, we, I think like this, this anxiety is really uh, important to kind of parse out because we have to understand how astrology was being used back then and why it would be pushed against so fiercely by our people, which is to say like, who wants to be ruled by some, you know, planets that do stuff up there? Isn't there another way to live? Is it, why would we want to feel so at the whim of things that we've got no control over? And so if astrology is being used in a way to make people feel oppressed or suppressed, then there's going to be a natural reaction against it. So hmm. the astrology they're talking about is and isn't necessarily the astrology that I'm talking about. You're and, saying that there's something almost inherent in the in the in the idea that there's there are forces that that kind of like, you know, shower influence down upon us that is inevitably going to create anxiety. Like then you're you're subject to the to the movements of you, 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 you lose control. There's something. So, so you would distinguish the kind of astrology that you're interested in from that, that vision of it. You know, astrology is a tool. So it's all about how we use it. Right. So if I use it to induce fear, then that's what it's going to be doing. But what astrology is to me is it's a mirror right? So it tells me it's like a, a cosmic mirror, if you will. And there's a lot of stuff in our tradition about the world below and the world above and the mirroring of the two, right? That, mm -hmm. that God is this, there's a lot of like this double stuff that goes on, especially like uh, in the Zohar or like, I think also in the Talmud about like, what is, what we're, what we're kind of aiming towards and also uh, the reflective kind of nature of the above and the below. And so th that's what astrology is to me. It's like this reflection of, and so if you're, and again, we come out of this for up until very recently, all we had was the natural world to look at and to try to orient ourselves and understand where we are and what's going on. And so the natural world we're in partner in these, you know, like in these philosophical systems, we're in partnership with it. It's speaking to us. It's animated. It's not dead. It's alive because all of it is God. So if God is both the heavens and God is both the earth and as we are part of that, then why wouldn't the natural world be speaking to us? And, you know, like if the astrologers are saying, oh, there's, there's someone that's coming, which we can talk about like a lot of different, you know, people's arrival that was like a really big deal back in the ancient world were marked by stars right? so what didn't somebody come after you know like even though it was like this huge thing when they were whispering to pharaoh like there's somebody coming didn't they come <laughs> what you're saying feels so true to especially the like post like kabbalistic kind of right, strains right, right. in in jewish thought where right. they really are obsessed with Kind of theurgy and how we can tap into what's going on above because what's yeah. going on above affects what's going on below and what's going on below could affect what's going on above like there's some kind of tether between the the spheres but on the other hand so that feels yes like th there's there is much thinking uh, on that kind of relationship in our tradition and on the other hand once you start to say like 
God is everything. God is the heavens. God, like it, it, it's, it gets so close to that kind of central theological anxiety in Judaism that no, there's something above all of this. And it isn't just naturalistic. There's a, there's a higher force, you know, higher so, than nature, you're higher than nature. Right. Right. I think that's, that's, that's the, those who would be skeptical or yeah. suspicious of astrology and Jewish tradition would yeah. be, I think, um, um, trying to preserve some sense that there's a God who could do things or we could tap into that was above all of this, that wasn't subject to any physical laws of nature. That, that in a sense, is the approach that the Ibn Ezra, I think, ends up, up taking, which is that astrology is, is, is a truth and the forces of the stars are real, but that there is some way of, of escaping that. If you, could, if you could tap into God, then you could kind of, you could mitigate the forces of, of astrology. Yeah. Well, I say to people a lot, like when I'm, you know, giving readings or talking to friends, I'm like, you don't need, like they're doing their life in a way that to me mirrors their astrology perfectly. And so I always say, you don't even need the astrology. Like you don't need to know this, like you're doing it already. And, you know, I thought a lot about that, that passage that you sent. And it was like, right. If you're really doing your life and if you're really dedicated to the worship of what you consider to be holy in whatever way that is. You don't need it. You don't need astrology. You don't need, you don't need these systems. I just think so few of us are actually in that deep. <laughs> and so right. astrology can be this really helpful tool for understanding the quality of time that stamped your birth. And even when you are in that deep, you know, I give readings to lots of different people that do a lot of different things in the world. You know, a lot of people very successful, very in their path, very, you know, doing the thing. And it's still this fascinating tool because that mirror is so crystal clear. How is it possible that the stars could say this and without you knowing it, you went and did the same thing? And that 50 years later, you have a reading with somebody and it's a perfect alignment. It's kind of awe-inducing. And I think it actually helps to promote a greater awareness of this, the sacredness of life and that there might be something out there that's also reflecting to us all the time who we are and what our life is about. So, okay, so let's take a look at what the Ibn Ezra actually says here. I'm really curious about how you would react to his attempt to grapple, grapple with some of these anxieties. Because as I said, back in the Talmud, it's kind of like a debate. It's like, oh, there, there is astrological influence. And then another opinion says, no, 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 not, not for us, not for Israel. We were tapped into something else. And the Ibn Ezra at first seems to echo that idea in Mazali Israel. There's no, there's no astrology, no sign for Israel, but then his, his version of it actually, like, it seems to be kind of a middle position. Uh, and here's, here's what he says. He says, one can only be saved from one's fate if one cleaves to, and one is protected 
by a power that is higher and more powerful than the stars. Okay, so it seems like he's taking the like God above the stars mm -hmm. position, but then he gives like a parable and he says, okay, so the arrangement of, of the stars, had it that a river would overpower a city and kill or flood its inhabitants. Okay, so the, the stars are, are, are telling you that, the, that a flood is coming, which in some ways doesn't even seem like just like magic prediction. It seems like, oh, well, like, you know, as, as we said, these, the planetary bodies affect the, the movement of the water. So it's like, it's, it almost seems like, like this is just scientific observation. But, um, but then he says, okay, so then a prophet comes, I guess this is someone tuned into God, and warn the people to turn to God before the arrival of the day of their calamity. The people turn to God with all their heart. Now, I, th I would think at this point, he would go on to say, and so God made it so there's no flood, right? Like that would be the like, God is more powerful in astrology. But what he does say instead is because the people cleaved unto God, God put it in their hearts to go out of the city and pray to the Lord. They did this. And then on the appointed day, the river suddenly overflowed and they were out of the, the city. So right. it's like, in the end, he's not saying tap into God and you will, and you will like suspend the laws of nature, the laws of, of the stars, but instead that if you were tapped into whatever, you know, whatever he understands by prophecy and God here, that in a sense, you would have a better understanding of the operation of the stars and you would be able to not like negate them, but kind of, um, to to survive. but to to yeah to survive to like to 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 move differently based on the knowledge that you have so this seems like a very like he's kind of having it both ways like he's maintaining mm -hmm. the the influence of the stars but but saying that there are i mean it almost sounds like the prophet is the astrologer you know right right so yeah so it's like that's what I mean when I say it to people that are really living out their life, like, so you don't need me. Like, I'm just here to like affirm what you're doing because you're living out your astrology in this, in this way that's really profound. And yet it's here still as a tool if you need it. So if, the, so there's two ways, well, there's a couple of different ways to think about astrology. It's either that the planets are making things happen, which is not something I ascribe to, or they're mirroring what's going on below, that it's a mirror above as so, so above, so below. So it's saying like, oh, okay, this is a time where oh, it's going to be like dicey for this particular type of thing. So if I can see that coming down the road, I could be like, okay, I'm going to like prepare for that flood in this case. Or if I'm living in accordance with my soul and I am in worship with all that's holy, perhaps that opens me up to a, a knowing and a way to like relinquish my need to control everything and be open to a greater source of knowledge and move with life in a way like I would say like to me that's like oh yeah you 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 are in this kind of almost like a prostration to something that you believe in and therefore you're much more likely to follow your intuition <laughs> like you're much more likely to follow the word of God you're much more likely to be open to Hey, get out of here. <laughs> you know, like that feeling in your body or that sense of that something else is talking to you. And so you can use both. You can use one, but you need to, I think what these, what he's saying is like, you need to be that dedicated. <laughs> like, and, and of course the, the, the Torah is always telling us that and the religious traditions are always telling us that, but it's, it's requiring kind of that level of 
of relationship. What both of these systems ha- have in common is a certain kind of trust in in one's intuition, in one's like it, it, uh, it, one's ability to 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 have a reaction or a sort of a a kind of um, response to the world around, and then to trust that there's something to that. That like you actually have to listen to to some kind of uh, internal intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, that's maybe not entirely rational. I mean, like, do you think of astrology as a, as a rational system or, or, or is intuitive the right word? Is there something intuitive about the, the kind of knowledge that you're seeking? Cause I, I, I mean, cause I think about that with religion, that there is something, what part of what's important about it is a, a kind of trusting that there are forces that we cannot under fully understand. Yeah. I think it's that living in that intersection. I don't believe in trying to be totally intuitive when you're looking at astrology. There's like this, again, this deep tradition that goes back thousands of years of this, when this happens, so this happens and, and really understanding the qualities of everything. And so there's a, there's a deep logic to it. And again, if you look at the ancient world, there's a logic to everything mystical. Like they, that, you know, like so many of the ancients were like, oh, well, this is how the system falls. This is, this is the reflection of it. Like there are seven visible planets. Seven is a really important number. Right. Right. The Ezra talks about that. Even as is really, really obsessed with this idea of like, the seven constellations, the seven planets. And, and of course, yeah, that goes back to, to our, our like seven days of creation. So if for him, yes, it's, this is all like a system of, of a pattern that just keeps repeating itself throughout creation. Exactly. And when you study traditional astrology, these patterns are so exquisitely laid out and they're so beautifully thought out and everything has a place and a meaning and so I love the symmetry. I love the system. I love the rules. And then you have you have to like I I have steeped myself in those rules. And then, and then I also have to let something else come through, which is what you might call intuition or or just the soul of the reading or the the moment that you're with somebody else. It's like there's another energy that comes in when you're actually doing the work. Right. But and 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 whatever it is, it's bigger than you. I mean that that also feels very true to both of these systems. The recognition that there are there are great great forces working that that are that are that are bigger than 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 our plans and bigger than our our strategies. And there there are just great forces at work in the universe, and that we and have so to. You don't know what's good for you. It's like. Ibn Ezra's life, like I'm sure he wanted more money and he wanted his kids to be closer and and to have longer, like all that stuff. And yet because of the things that happened to him, we could think like it set him out on this journey. Like he was like a rambling man. He was like moving around and, and probably because of that, he was open to a lot of different influences and needed to be so prolific, perhaps. Perhaps that was part of his way of making a living, but also his way of coping. It was his great gift. And so, you know, at the end of his life, you you have to also look at like beyond his life. And again, what we said in the beginning, like what his life meant. It, it wasn't 
so enjoyable for him. And yet he had this great fate of mm. being a translator and a, a, a channel for such amazing knowledge. And that's where we get really freaked out is like, if I, if I go to an astrologer and they tell me my fate is going to be really hard, then what the, what do I do then? And so what the response is, I think in Judaism is it's like, don't worry so much, just follow God. Like it's like, put that aside. Don't, don't get so wrapped up in all of that stuff. Just focus here. And I think that's incredibly calming. And I think we also have to know, like, because we were always having to distinguish ourselves from the people we were amidst, right? We're always in some, in another culture. We're always like this subset. We're always like this group of people, but we have these other cultures around us. And so we're always trying to distinguish ourselves from everybody. And so there's also that need to say, not that, but this. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, I feel like there's a kind of um, a delicate balance here that I, I, I suspect we, we both feel, you know, in, in, on the one hand, um, you know, ho holding on to these, these ancient traditions that can provide us with guidance and, and a sense of a, of a greater sense of, of purpose. And, and in the, you use that, that word a lot of sort of like your purpose and your, your, like your book is called, we were born for this, a sense of, <laughs> of destiny, of purpose. And, the, and the, there's something tremendously comforting uh, about that on the one hand. And then on the, on the other hand, you know, getting so locked into notions of the way things have to be that you, you lose your ability to think for yourself and your, your ability to, you know, I mean, we've been talking about anxieties the whole time, but one of them is the anxiety around free will and the sense that, okay, so, you know, God has a plan or, okay, so the stars are predicting something, but, you know, once I have a fate, does that, does that leave me powerless or do I have, you know, do I have the ability to respond to, or maybe even change that, that fate and that there's a, there's a balance in there. So it's sort of a delicate balance in there. Yeah. And a lot of the way, you know, we can think about like, again, place, time of birth, place of birth, how, how, who was I born into? What circumstances were I born into? That's a fate. You know, like I, I, I wasn't born anywhere else. I was born where I was born and that set me up in a specific kind of way. That's a fate. Like I, people, someone born in a totally different circumstance has different, you know, <laughs> circumstances to have to grapple with. And then I am, I have the free will to do what I can do within, within my given circumstances. It's like, what am I going to do with the privilege of my whiteness? I'm not anything else. You know, what am I going to do with my, with the, the history of my Jewishness? I can't change those things. Those are what I have, but it's up to me to do something meaningful with them. And you can find that in, I think, astrology, you can find it in the Torah, you can find it in, you know, a system that has meaning for you. My thing is that I just want people to move towards what has meaning for them, so that the meaning of their life can be uncovered, or so that they feel like they have the agency to do the things they, f they feel deep in their soul. Mm -hmm. And 
that might be the smallest, maybe be something nobody ever sees. It could be something totally in private. It could be something big and sparkly out in the world. Doesn't matter. I just am invested in for some reason, I don't know why, <laughs> encouraging people to move towards that. My way of doing it is astrological. But again, I don't, I don't think that that every, that it should be for everybody. It's weird when, when everybody starts to believe in astrology, it gets to be like the ancient world and people go, you know what? I don't like this so much. It's too much Uh, that, you know, Christianity was also like a big reaction to this like fate based world. And so, well, if I just believe in this, this guy, (laughs) it's my way to like get out of everything which then becomes its own problem. And then we have this other reaction. So we're as humans, we're always like, what is my fate? What can I do with this life? What is a way to live a meaningful life? And a lot of times, like, what's the, what's the way to grapple with all of this and make sense of it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's, you know, that, that is a lot, a lot of, 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 of what is, is, is important to me about having the Torah as, as a guidebook in, in, in my life, you know, is some sense that there is not an entirely mapped out, you know, locked in predicted life that I am, that I like that I already have scripted out for me, but that I have a kind of a, a path and a set of tools, and you know, time-worn tools that, that allow me to, to move through the world with some, some wisdom and some, um, some, some sense of, I don't, I don't think I would use the word predictability, but some sense of, of, of rhythm, like that I'm tapped into the, to the, to the rhythms of, of time and, and the world that like, that people, my people have been testing now for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's, that's part of what's exciting about, um, about tapping into the, to an ancient system, like, 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 like Judaism, like astrology is that you have a sense of, of rhythm, people, people, your people having discovered certain rhythms and being able to tap into those, into those rhythms mm-hmm. and thereby to lead like a more, you know, a more meaningful life. And I guess when I say meaning, I mean like, you know, a sense that you are at home in the, in the universe, that you have a sense of place in, in the universe, that like, this is the things are proceeding kind of as they, they should be. And so, you know, and so you're proceeding as, as you should. So I'm grateful for the conversation. Yeah, grateful for the, uh, the interchange. So yeah. Um, I will say, I'm going to warn you, you're going to get a lot of negative feedback about this episode. A lot of positive oh, you, and a lot of negative. I okay. Like, I'm, I'm how great. dare you talk about astrology? <laughs> how dare you bring this in? I know, I know, it's true. <laughs> but you know, like that's uh, like uh, my my yeah. my intention is we're leaving behind anxiety. Okay, so <laughs> that's like I, I I hereby disregard all all negative feedback. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and Vera Blossom. Our theme song is Baruch HaMakom by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ikar.org. 
and donate or Venmo us at IkarLA. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.